It's wonderful to be with each and every one of you today. We have a wonderful crowd for which we are thankful. We have some visitors from other places, good friends that are with us, and family. We also have some folks from the community, and we would hope that you would feel as you are, and that is an honored guest today. You know, today is a day that the world considers to be significant. This is the day that the world recognizes the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you know, we do that every Lord's Day. In fact, today is the most important day of our week because it's the first day of the week. It's Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. And every Lord's Day, we appreciate the resurrection of Jesus in the communion where we commemorate his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Very significant every Lord's Day. But all of that being said, let's talk about the event, the greatest miracle that ever happened. The greatest interaction that God had with his son in a miraculous form, in a supernatural form, to raise him from the dead. We want to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ for a little while this morning. May I say also in introduction here, all the critics in the world that have tried to discount or tried to uh, tried to speak away or tried to do away with the resurrection have to answer the question, why was the tomb empty? As the text we find in Matthew chapter 28 and beginning there in verse 2, and behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. Just a few foundational things before we begin with the resurrection part. You remember in our mind's eye we go back to the crucifixion and maybe... We'll just go back to the last few minutes on the cross. Okay? We went through a series, a long series on the last week in the life of Jesus. Let's just go maybe for the last few minutes of his life. And when Jesus was hanging on Mount Calvary, when he was hanging on Calvary's cross, he finally said, he said, Father, he said, it is finished. It is accomplished. I have done it. I have fulfilled what you sent me to do. And then he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And then the Bible says in one gospel account, he literally bowed his head and he gave up the ghost, the King James says. So Jesus freely gave his life. His life was not taken away. Understand this. This was on the day of preparation. This is Parascue Day. This was Friday. And the Bible says it was even or at the beginning part of the early evening of the Jewish day. That's 3 p.m. And at 3 p.m., Jesus is dead. Now, that means that in order to count that day to bury Jesus, in order to count part of Friday, okay, he has to be taken down from the cross, and he's got to be buried before 6 p.m. At 6 p.m., it became the Sabbath. It was the next day. So there was a secret disciple, and the Bible says his name was Joseph of Arimathea. And he was a secret disciple for fear of the Jews, the Bible says. He was also one, by the way, that was a member of the Sanhedrin, and uh, he did not consent to the death of Jesus, and he just so happens to have a grave nearby. In fact, remember this, in Isaiah chapter 53, 
It said his grave was to be assigned among wicked men, but that wouldn't happen. He would be with a rich man in his death. So here comes Joseph of Arimathea, right? And he takes Jesus and he begs the body of Jesus. And incidentally, it says when he went to Pilate, he summoned the courage. Just a little side note here. Have you ever stopped to consider that? And by the way, there is no such thing as courage where there is no fear. So fear is not the problem. Okay, A coward is a reaction to the fear. That's what's wrong. A courageous person is a reaction to the fear. That matters. This was a man that summoned the courage and went and begged the body of Jesus. And really, it always is courageous to stand up for Jesus. Always. It takes courage to do that, even today. And he begs the body of Jesus, and he takes the body of Jesus, and the Bible says, he wraps him in linen, and he lays him in his new tomb. I read something this week I didn't know. Maybe you've heard this. Maybe you know this. But it was quite an honor to be laid in a new tomb. I didn't know anything about that. But really, it was, a, it was something of honor. It was an act of honor. Jesus is crucified between two thieves, like a thief, like a criminal, which he was not. But when he was buried, he was buried like the king that he is. How do I know that? You know, in John chapter 19, John's account says Nicodemus showed up. Nicodemus shows up. And he comes with a hundred pounds of fragrant spices, a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloe, right? And the Bible says, or aloe, it was wrapped in those spices, Okay, You know the only time historically they used 100 pounds, the only time, is when they buried a king. Jesus was crucified between two thieves. His grave was to be assigned among wicked men, but he would be with a rich man in his death. And he was buried like the king that he is. He is king of kings. He's lord of lords. Well, then the Bible says they took the stone and they rolled the stone in front of the opening of the grave. And you know, there was a reason for that. Obviously, you've got to keep the animals out. You have a dead body in that grave. And they have to keep the animals out. So that was one of the reasons they rolled a stone in front of that sepulcher. But there was also another reason. Grave robbers. And I don't know how common that was, but people coming in, I don't know what they were going to steal. But the two reasons that historically they rolled a stone in front of the opening was to keep animals out and also graves cloaks or graves uh, robbers. What else? There were the two Marys there too. You ever, you ever stop to consider why the Marys were there? Now remember this. It was the day of preparation, so it wasn't the Sabbath yet. There's three hours before it became the Sabbath, from the time he was crucified until the Sabbath hit. You ever wondered why they went there? You know, when I think about somebody dying, I think about a cemetery. I think about when you go to visit somebody's grave, I think about a public cemetery. We're not talking about a public cemetery. We're talking about a private tomb. We're talking about a new tomb. In fact, one that was newly hewn out of a rock and no one had ever been there or in it. No doubt these women had to go there. How do I know that? Because in Luke's account it says that they come back after the Sabbath for the purpose of tending to the body of Jesus even more. So they had to find out where that grave was, no doubt. So they're there opposite the sepulcher to find out exactly where it was. They would be coming back after the uh, Sabbath. So all of a sudden you have people that join together. 
Now get this. All of a sudden, you have a problem. You've got the Pharisees and the chief priests, and they join together with the same problem. Remember this. The only thing they've got to do is they've got to be, they've got to be able to talk away or do away with the fact that he is risen. And all they were worried about was three days. That's it. In fact, all of a sudden, the Sadducees, because they were primarily made up of the Sadducees, the chief priests, and you got the Pharisees. And incidentally, this is the second time in a week that the Pharisees and the Sadducees joined up together. The first time was on Tuesday earlier on in the week in the day of questions when they came to Jesus with the Herodians and the three groups of men tried to discredit Jesus by asking him questions. They couldn't do it. Now they do it again. Now, you ever consider this. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in that at all. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They thought when you're dead, that's it. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did believe in the resurrection. Okay? But they have a problem. Here's the problem. The Sadducees don't believe that he's going to be raised, so they want to keep it from the disciples to come in and steal the body away. Okay? That's the Sadducees. The Pharisees, they believed in the possibility of it, but they didn't recognize Jesus as the Son of God. They didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They didn't recognize the deity of Jesus. So they also think, wait a minute, even though it's possible to rise and have an afterlife, I don't think it's going to be Jesus. So they would come and steal him away and fabricate it. And this is what they said in verse 63 of chapter 27. They said, remember, sir, how the deceiver said he was alive, when he was alive, that after three days I will rise again. And incidentally, Jesus said this more than once. In fact, on one occasion, though, in Matthew chapter 12, in verses 39 and 40, remember that was a very significant event. You've got those that were rejecting Jesus. You have those religious leaders. And they said to Jesus, show us a sign. Give us a sign. Give us some kind of a magic trick. And Jesus said, the only sign that I'm going to give you is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so shall also be the Son of Man three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So we're worried about three days, right? we got to do something about three days. So they go to Pilate and they said, remember when he was alive, he said he would be raised the third day. We have to do something about that. All right. So what they said is to Pilate, they said, command that the stone or the tomb be secure until the third day, lest the disciples come by night and steal the body and say that he is risen. You know, I thought about this uh, the other day. Have you ever stopped to consider that the way that we oftentimes judge somebody else is based on our own character? Let me, let me show you what I mean by that. If, if I'm a dishonest person... If that's me, I'm dishonest. I expect other people to behave the same. If I'm deceptive, I expect other people are going to behave the same way. If I'm evil and mean-spirited, I would suggest or I would think in my mind, other people are going to behave the same way. So here are the disciples, right? And in their mind, because they're deceitful, they're deceptive, they're liars, they're all of those dishonest things. They think the disciples are going to do the same thing. They don't view the disciples as a bunch of honest, good men that just lost their leader and their heart's sick about it. They think it this way. Oh, no. 
They're going to pull off the greatest hoax known to man ever done. They're going to pull off the greatest hoax in history. Here's Pilate's solution. And by the way, think about all the decisions Pilate made. When Jesus was before him, he said, I, I got it. I'll send him to Herod, right? And that didn't work. Herod sent him back. He said, your problem. Deal with it. He looked upon him and, and six times he said, I find no fault in him. Six times. He gets another idea and he brings him out and stands him next to Barabbas. Surely they'll choose to release Jesus over Barabbas. No, they don't. That didn't work either. Bad decision, bad choice. So then he gets an idea. I got it. I'll just beat him. And they take him and they literally almost beat him to death with beatings and scourgings and all of that. And they mocked him. That didn't work. And finally, it was on to the cross. Have you ever stopped to consider the only thing Pilate did that was a good choice was when he was hanging on the cross and it was the superscription that was placed over his head in the three uh, languages of the ancient world, okay? Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And that is, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Here's the decision. They said, no, take it down. Don't say he's the king of the Jews. Say he said, I'm the king of the Jews. Pilate made the choice. No, what I have written, I have written. That's the only thing he did right. He is the king. King of kings and Lord of lords. So here's the, here's the solution that Pilate says. He said, make it as secure as you can. And this is how he says it. Seal the stone and set the watch. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about sealing something up. You might think about it like from a painting standpoint. Seal something together, caulk it together. Okay. You might think about gluing. A carpenter might glue things together. And we might say that is sealed together. Okay. That's not this word here. and That's not what they meant. The seal, did not keep, the seal did not make it impossible to open. What it was is the seal was a governmental seal. And it had a cord, by the way. And the cord would be placed on the entrance of the tomb and also be placed on the stone itself. It would be placed there with wax and kind of like a signet ring. It was official. It was a governmental official uh, idea and it was placed on one side with the with the wax and on the other side with the wax and together it was bound by a cord in other words it wasn't impossible to open it was a crime to open that's what that meant make it as secure as you can seal the stone it wasn't an impossibility to roll the stone away it was a crime to break the seal so that's what Pilate says. That's what you're going to do. And set a watch. Fowler said this, though. This is brilliant. The seal means that non-disciples are forced to be first to bring the astounding news to Jesus' enemies that all of their precautions have been futile. It is not the disciples who tamper with the tomb or the body. No doubt, absolute, he arose. Now, the Sabbath is over. Okay. All that being said, the Sabbath is now over. And we go to Matthew's account again in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. Now, have you ever seen the painting? I love this. The, the painting. Okay, The depiction. And the painting shows a guy, shows an angel, brilliant angel, whatever that, that they thought it looked like. And it shows him sitting on a stone. 
And then inside the tomb, the entrance of the tomb, they see this. There's got this light coming out of the tomb. And Jesus triumphantly walking out alive. Is that why the tomb was open? Is that why the stone was rolled away? Listen, the stone was rolled away not to let Jesus out. The stone was rolled away to let the others in. Make no mistake about it. You think the Lord needed that? He could have walked right through that rock. In fact, you know what happens a little later on that night? He walks through a door. He didn't need that. It was for others to see in. And by the way, picture this. No other mention at all is of the seal. In other words, when the angel rolled the stone away, he couldn't have broke the seal. Or they just said, look, the seal is broken. No, an angel did it. And rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. Now, in verses 3 and 4, his countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And notice, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. In other words, they were paralyzed with fear. Have you ever been really, 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 really scared? Sometimes people, you know, you know the phrase scared stiff? Man, I'm scared stiff. In other words, you are so petrified, you are so afraid, you're almost paralyzed. You can't move. They were paralyzed as in fear. Now, I'm going to tell you what some commentators say, and I don't think this is right at all. Some say, wait a minute, they were scared to death because they feared their own life. They feared for their life because it was a crime. If you were a guard, if something happened to the one you were guarding and he got away, it was worthy of death. Philippian jailer, okay? Philippian jailer. That's what the Philippian jailer was afraid of. That's not what this says. Didn't say that at all. The guard shook for fear of him. That's the angel. He was in the presence of a, an event. It was an act of God and he was powerless, folks. You know, it's kind of like this. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? Remember when they came to get Jesus in the garden? Jesus walks out. He sees them and it says he goes out. Jesus saw them coming and he goes out. And then it said there was a band of men. Remember what that is? That's a Roman cohort. We talked about how many recently, I think, I might have mentioned to you. But a Roman cohort was uh, 500 men. So 500 men are coming to pick up a Galilean carpenter and his friends. Because that's all they considered him to be. And here they come. Jesus sees them out in front. What does he do? Judas is leading the mob. Jesus goes first. And Jesus said what? He said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, this is what it says in the original. Jesus said, I am. And in his presence, they drew back. And they fell to the ground. Powerless. That's the point. And, you know, just maybe this was happening in the face of or, or in the eye shot of Judas to show that these, that these men and Judas, too, had no power. None. They all fell. That's kind of what happened here. They became like dead men. I don't know how long they were, but they were scared stiff. Notice what happens, though, in the next two verses. But the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come, see the place where the Lord lay. In other words, these precious women can stand with courage. 
That God only has the very best in store for them, and the one that they seek is not dead. He's alive. In other words, they came seeking a dead leader. They left seeking a risen Savior. And their hearts were full of wonder and amazement and hope. Verses 7 and 8. And then they're told this. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. Verse 9. And as they went to tell his disciples, notice, behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. And so they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Now, it's brilliant that they would give the first-hand eyewitness testimony to the resurrection. That they would have that. Now, it says here, they held him by the feet. There is no contradiction, but we have to go to John. Got to go to John's account, okay? Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and my God and your God. In the King James Version, it says, touch me not. In the original, it says this. Stop clinging to me. So what the Lord said is, stop clinging to me. I have not yet ascended to my Father. Now, there's all kinds of explanations that you will read in commentaries about what he meant by that. Touch me not, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. All kinds of explanations. Okay? Now, we know that it wasn't a matter of don't touch me because I haven't gone up to my Father 40 days after that. We know it wasn't that because later on he said to touch him. Eight days later he told Thomas, touch me. So it's entirely possible it fits the prophetic type. The high priest went into the Holy of Holies. This is the way Linwood used to preach it. The high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year to the presence of God and took the blood sacrifice of the lamb and was given there for the people in the presence of God once a year. Some scholars say that it's entirely possible. Jesus, fulfilling the type, went to heaven, ascended to heaven, and brought the sacrifice before God in his presence. Just like the Old Testament uh, uh, high priest would do. Now, I I'm just suggesting that is an idea that it could be. It doesn't really matter. Here's all that matters. They were clinging to him, and he says, stop. Stop clinging to me. Touch me not. Now, also in John chapter 20, in John's account, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Now, interestingly, there was a custom, an Eastern custom. And when they would have a meal, okay, if you were going to get up from the table, and you were finished, what they would do is they would take the napkin and they would throw it down with the other linens. And in other words, you were throwing it down there saying, I'm not coming back. I'm done. I'm finished. You know what it says here? Also, from the standpoint of if you were going to come back, you know what they did? They took the napkin and they folded it neatly and they put it by itself. Significant? That's history. I didn't make that up. 
Okay? Let's just read what the Word of God says, just so we can say we did. Look, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lined with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. That is the Eastern custom or the Oriental custom of leaving the meal. I'm coming back. Now, I know one thing for sure. He's coming back. And why would the word of God specify that the napkin was folded separate from the rest of the linens if it wasn't significant? He's coming back. And we are so grateful. Matthew 28 and 10 again. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go tell my brethren to go into Galilee and there you will see me. Now, interesting about this. The Lord echoes the words of the angel exact with one difference. One difference. The angel said, go tell my disciples. Jesus says, go tell my brethren. And you know what's interesting about that? One commentator said, he said, and there's really two theories here. One said, because the word brethren means brothers. It means a kin relationship, a kinship relationship. So one commentator said that it was possible. This is just one idea. It's entirely possible that he was talking about his own half-brothers. In other words, tell them that I have risen so that they understand my mission. I don't think that's what he's talking about at all. I think what he's talking about is exactly what the angel said. The angel said, go tell my disciples. You know what the Lord is saying? Not only tell my followers, you tell my kin. You tell my spiritual kin. You tell my brethren. Even though you left me. Even though you forsook me. Even though you all fled in fear. Even though you were nowhere to be found. You're my brethren. Go tell my brethren. Go tell. I think that's exactly what the Lord's saying there. Now, his spiritual kin. And then verse 11. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. You know what's interesting about this? You got the women, okay? You got the women, you got the soldiers. And if you ever stop to consider the women and the soldiers, they're going to tell the same story. Please get that. They're going to tell the same story. It's good news from the women. It's bad news from the soldiers. But it's the same story. There's no fabrication. Do you want to know what the story was from the get-go? The story was this. He's risen. That's the story. The women bring the good news. The soldiers bring the bad news of that specific factual event he is risen but you know something people from all cultures in every era of history they tried to, to deny the resurrection let me suggest seven theories really quickly seven theories these are seven theories that people have actually had and you know what you're going to find when i show you these theories you're going to find it's so much easier just to read the word of god he's risen he's not here he is risen easier to do that but not society let me tell you what man has done over time the first theory that we talk about is the swoon theory. That was the semi-coma theory. Now, this was really a theory, by the way. And in this theory, this is what it said. Jesus never really died. He was never actually dead. In fact, he was just traumatized. 
Seriously? Seriously traumatized, that's it? He was traumatized, but when he was buried in the tomb, there was the coolness of the tomb, and there was the fragrant spices, and when they wrapped the body with those spices, you know what happened to him? He revived himself and he got up. Come on. Do you remember this? You know, the Romans were very, very good at crucifixion. They were very good at execution. They knew. Do you remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross? The Bible says they didn't break his legs. And you and I know why they didn't break his legs. We know that they didn't break his legs because that's exactly what God said would happen. Not a bone in his body would be broken. We know that. Soldiers know that? Nope. You know why they didn't? He was already dead. And then they did what? They took the spear and then came the death stroke. And they took it and thrust it into the side of Jesus. And from his side flowed blood and water, which showed two things. Number one, he was human. Number two, he was dead. Oh, and by the way, Chris is going to preach on this tonight. He's going to preach on the road to Emmaus. And if this is true, then Jesus just walked to that village with holes in his feet. It's, a, it's impossible. That's the swoon theory. And by the way, interestingly about it, this theory, it took 1,600 years to come up with that theory. And a man by the name of Venturini, he came up with it. 1,600 years. What else? Here's another theory. The no burial theory. Remember, we've already established that his grave was to be assigned among wicked men, but he would be with the rich man in his death. Okay, Where wicked men were taken was in the Valley of Hinnom, a city waste dump, a real place. It was called Gehenna. And they would take the bodies of those wicked men and throw them on a pile where fires burned constantly. That's where wicked men were supposed to go. Bible says it wouldn't happen. He'd be with a rich man in his death. So the no burial theory is this. He died, but he was never buried. He was just thrown onto that heap, and his body was burned, but he was not risen. If that's the case, then that means nobody was in the grave. Nobody was in the tomb, right? Why seal it? It means nobody was in the tomb. If that theory is right, nobody was in the tomb, what else? Why put a guard out there? Why guard the temp, the, the, why guard the sepulcher if there was nobody in it? Here's another one. This is, and they get ridiculous. This is the hallucination theory. Yeah. Hallucination. In other words, the disciples, they didn't really see the Lord. They just hallucinated. I'm going to tell you, that's a whole lot of hallucinating going on. Because they hallucinate for 40 days. 40 days of hallucinating. All hallucinating the same thing. And by the way, by the way, this theory said they hallucinated that, but he really hadn't risen from the dead. And remember this. Why would they hallucinate something they didn't even think was going to happen? Do you remember one time when Jesus talking to his disciples, he said to his disciples, he said, I'm going to die, and on the third day I'm going to rise again. You remember what one of them said? Ask him what he meant. They didn't have a clue. Why would they hallucinate something they didn't think was even going to happen? It doesn't make any sense. They didn't expect one. Oh, and by the way, and then die as martyrs for a hallucination. And by the way, he'd still be in the grave if that's true. Here's another one. Again, they get ridiculous. The, the uh, telepathy theory. In other words, it was a matter of telepathy or they were given telepathic 
pictures from God. In other words, he never really rose from the dead. It was just telepathic pictures. No. You know what it would have to be? A telepathic movie. It went on and on and on and on. Ridiculous. And again, what about the tomb? The tomb was empty. What else? Oh, this is a good one. How about the seance theory? Yeah. And this theory actually believed that a medium conjured up the spirit of the dead Jesus by occult power. And it really wasn't Jesus being raised from the dead. Again, though, how was the tomb empty? Where was the body? And how could they touch him? Third, next, look at this one. The mistaken identity theory. Come on. In other words, there was somebody that just looked like Jesus. They said, oh, he, ro he rose. How did he walk through a door? How did he spend 40 days with his disciples? How did he ascend in Acts chapter 1 up toward the heavens? How did he do that? And again, if that's the case, if the mistaken identity theory is correct, you know what that means? The body of Jesus would still be in the tomb. It's not. He's risen. Okay. There's one more. It's the last one. And it is, I'll just call it this. I'll call it, this is the best of the bad. Here it is. The theft theory. So, in other words, somebody stole the body of Jesus. Who did that? Soldiers? No. Religious leaders? Absolutely not. So the only other people could have been the disciples, if you believe in the theft theory. How could they have done it? How could the disciples have overpowered the soldiers, rolled the stone away, unraveled Jesus, and furthermore, by the way, you wouldn't steal the body, fabricate a resurrection, and then die as a martyr for it. You wouldn't do that. You know what we find? We find the actual lie proves the resurrection. I used to have a sermon on that. I used to call it the lie that proves the resurrection. The lie actually proves it. Let me show you what I mean. In Matthew 28, 12 through 15, when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave notice. Get this. They gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. You know what's amazing to me? The lie cost more than the betrayal. When Jesus was crucified, he was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. When the lie came, it was a large sum of money. You know, I got to thinking about this morning, actually. Haven't you ever seen this? A lie always costs more. A lie is always worse. I remember growing up, if you tell a lie, it's worse than standing there, even though you're wrong about something, but you admit it and you don't lie. It's always better than when you lie. If you lie, it's worse. It's always worse. The lies have always been worse. And you know what they did? They gave large sums of money to protect the lie. And I'm almost finished, but listen to me, please. Nothing explains away the fact that the tomb was empty. 
The only answer is he's risen. And because he is raised, we have hope. We have hope. It's the only reason we have hope. Jesus cheated death. God raised him from the dead. He is risen and the tomb is still empty. I don't know where that is. By the way, you can go there and it'll say the garden tomb, you know, Catholicism says. I don't know where that was. Doesn't even matter. Whatever it was, it was Joseph of Arimathea's new tomb. That's all we know. And you know what? He didn't stay in there longer than three days. He's out. He's out. Now, why is it a blessing? Why is it important for us to believe in the resurrection? I'm going to give you this passage and I'm done. Here it is. This is why you have to believe in the resurrection. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. You know what's great about that? This world is not as good as it's going to get. What if this was it? What if this was it? We are of all men, the King James says, most miserable. If there is no resurrection, and by the way, if there is no resurrection, that means Christ did not die. Christ was not raised. If that's the case, we're of all men most miserable. Got no hope. But we do have hope. And the first thing you have to do in order to have this hope, you have to obey the gospel. You got to obey the gospel. You have to assimilate what Jesus did with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's at baptism. When you go down into the watery grave of baptism and you die to sin and you're raised to walk in newness of life, then you have hope. Then you are accessing the great hope that we have in Christ. If you're here and you're not a child of God, please become one today. This is how you do it. Come believing in Jesus. Repent of your sins. Confess his name as the Son of God. Say those words, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then be baptized in water for the remission of your sins and rise to walk in newness of life just like Jesus did in the long ago. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.